we're in this new series on Exodus. This has been loads of fun so far. It's been, we've learned lots, and I'm really excited about this morning's talk. I've had occasion to hear it multiple times. Um, uh, we're going to be hearing this morning from Lynn Fleshman, uh, who will be teaching us from God's Word from Exodus. Lynn uh, contributes regularly to the sermons that the rest of us preach, and this morning she'll be bringing you good news all by herself. Please welcome her. Thank you, Tim. Good morning, Christ Church. Uh, oh, and Tim already welcomed everybody on the live stream, but I want to say a special hello to my mom, who's watching the live stream right now. <laughs> hello, Mom. Happy Mother's Day, um, and happy Mother's Day to all of you, too. Um, so it's, I'm, I'm really looking forward to digging into God's Word together this morning. I, I think about you and pray for you during the week, whether I'm teaching or not, but I think I I did that with some extra fervency and expectation this week, and um, it's a joy and an honor to get to share what I've been learning with you. Um, I like this habit John's got us in of standing up for the reading of Scripture. So would you all stand with me, and we'll read today's passage. Uh, We'll pick up in Exodus 1, right where John left off. Last week, I think those verses are going to be on the screen for you, too. Um, Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous, and if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly." They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shipra and Pua, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives And the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this story, for your word for all the stories that are written down for our instruction. I pray, Holy Spirit, you would come and instruct us from your word today. Teach us. Tell us what you want us to hear. Help us to receive it. Make our hearts fertile ground. 
for your word this morning and let it bear much fruit for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, you may be seated. So when um, Jerron asked if I would like to teach something from the book of Exodus for this series, uh, I said, well, you know, let me, um, let me think about it. Let me just read through the book and I'll see if anything pops out to me. And then I texted him back about five minutes later and said, I got something. I had just made it one chapter into this book before I was totally blown away by one of the stories and knew that I, I wanted to share about it. Um, I was really drawn to this particular story, to what God does for his people here, and particularly to these midwives who fear God. Actually, the text mentions that twice, that they fear God. And the fear of the Lord is one of the attitudes most highly recommended to believers in Scripture throughout the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. But I'm guessing um, it's something that most of us haven't thought a lot about. Like, if you were to describe your relationship with God and what you're enjoying with Him right now, would you say that you fear Him? And would you even think of that as a good thing? So I think a lot of us have had um, maybe negative experiences with that phrase, or we've got negative associations with it. Um, like maybe, maybe the first time you ever heard about the fear of the Lord was in some weird religious setting. Um, or like on a TV show where there was a crazy person who was trying to scare everybody. Or maybe um, you've had an authority figure in your life who, uh, like, ruled by terror. And you wonder if that is what God wants you to feel toward him. So we think some of us have only heard the fear of the Lord described in ways that would make us never want to experience that. Um, but in this passage and throughout the whole Bible, we get the idea that the fear of the Lord is something God wants for us. Um, he talks about it like it's foundational for knowing him and for seeing him clearly. And since it's such an important feature in this story and also um, a huge theme in all of Scripture, we're going to spend the first part of this talk uh, just delving into that phrase and seeing if we can, and if we just start with the Bible, like if we set aside any negative associations, any misconceptions, any past experiences, if we set all that aside and just start with Scripture, what can we learn about the fear of the Lord? And there's actually a lot in the Bible on this topic, and we are not going to hit every verse this morning. Um, I told one of my friends that if the Bible was a carton of ice cream, um, the fear of the Lord would be like the fudge ripple that's going all the way through. <laughs> so, I know that's a terrible analogy, but I have heard a lot of car analogies and sports analogies and Lord of the Rings analogies, so I'm going with my ice cream analogy. <laughs> but uh, it's, it is like, no matter wherever you take a bite out of the Bible, you're going to run into this theme. It comes up a lot. Um, so just to start things off, we're kind of 
we're going to do kind of like a quick flyover of the Bible and look for this theme. And as we go along, I want to pointed out to you in specific places, things that I want you to notice. And then uh, once we've got kind of a better idea of what that phrase means, we will go back to today's text and land there and see what happens when these two Hebrew midwives fear the Lord. So like, just to put my cards on the table, like one of my goals for this talk is, is for us to develop a, a better, broader, more biblical understanding of this phrase but I'm also really hoping and praying that by the end, um, God is going to increase our desire for the kind of fear that he wants to give. So our first stop on this little tour will be Exodus 20. Uh, and this is an important passage because it helps us draw a distinction that's going to be helpful um, right off the bat. So in Exodus 20, uh, the Israelites are gathered at the base of Mount Sinai, and um, they've, been, they've spent three days preparing to enter into a covenant with God. He's told them how to prepare. You know, I want you to do these things. I want you to avoid these things. And on the third day, uh, God descends, and the whole mountain shakes with his presence. So then in Exodus 20, 20, Moses says to the people, Do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. So, do not be afraid so that the fear of God will be with you. It sounds like Moses is contradicting himself here, right? But I think he's actually drawing a distinction for us. That there is a fear of God that is right, that he wants to give us. And there's a fear of God that is wrong that he wants us to do away with. So what would a wrong fear of God look like? Well, a wrong fear of God actually drives us away from him. That's what happens in this chapter. In Exodus 20, um, God has come near to make this covenant with the Israelites, but they don't like what they see. They think this God is big He's powerful, he's demanding, he's kind of scary. And they tell Moses, we don't want to talk to him. We don't want to hear what he has to say. You go talk to him for us, and then we'll just relate to you. Uh, you're, you're not so scary, Moses. You go talk to God. So they, they'd rather relate to him. And then, um, not very long after that, they decide that they would rather relate to a golden calf, you know, to a god of their own design, who doesn't demand obedience or thunder from mountaintops or send plagues. So their wrong fear of God ends up driving them away from him, and it causes them to look for security in something other than God. And whether there is a golden calf involved or not, (laughs) that's what it does to us too. It will lead to idolatry. And, and there's a second kind of wrong fear of God that I think Scripture warns us about. Um, and that's a wrong fear that causes those who belong to God to feel uncertain about their future with him. I think that's the fear that John is talking about in 1 John 4. In verse 18, he says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. 
Now, because of the verses that come right before this one, I think the punishment that John is talking about here is eternal judgment. Um, He's not saying God will never do or say anything that feels like a punishment to you. Because we know, actually, that God disciplines his children. And, And sometimes that, well, most of the time, that is not pleasant. But it's actually proof that we're God's kids. It's proof of his love. It's proof that we really belong to him. But those who belong to God shouldn't have no fear of eternal condemnation. No fear that there will be a judgment against us when we stand before God. And actually, a right fear of the Lord fuels that kind of confidence. Um, Because those who fear the Lord believe that he means what he says, which is wonderful and terrifying. The fear of the Lord, the right fear of the Lord, would teach me to put all my confidence in God's assessment of things. And I would not dare contradict him. So if he says, faith in Jesus Christ makes me righteous, then it's true. I am not going to argue with him about that. And if he says, I have a place with him forever, then I believe it. I'm not going to doubt it. So I think John would tell us that the love of God casts out any fear that would make those who are saved feel insecure about their eternity with God. And that means that if you are in Christ, then with holy fear, you should consider God's perfect love and reject any anxiety you might feel about your eternity with him. And if you are not in Christ, then with holy fear, consider God's perfect love and believe in him today so you can live with him forever. So those are two ways the fear of the Lord can go wrong, can cause us to to back away from him, and move toward other sources of security, or it can cause us to feel insecure about uh, his ability to save us or our eternal future with him. But what would a right fear of God look like, according to Scripture? Um, Well, a right fear of God actually draws us into relationship with God. Um, There's a prophecy in Hosea that makes that clear. Um, He's talking about, When Israel returns from exile, um, he says, The children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. So when Israel returns, Hosea says, um, they're going to want to be in relationship with God again. And this desire is going to be fueled by their fear of the Lord. And it's a fear that is going to draw them to God and to his goodness. So I don't usually um, associate fear with goodness or with, like, being attracted to something. Like, usually I'm afraid of a thing because I think that thing is dangerous or harmful or it's going to be painful in some way. And fear is, like, my compulsion to avoid that thing. But the fear of the Lord works differently. A right fear of God actually draws us in. It's a fear that makes God more attractive to us. 
because it's something that we feel in response to God's goodness. And God's goodness is goodness in its purest and most potent form, um, which is what makes it kind of terrifying, too. And also what draws us in. That is what's so attractive about him. It is his overwhelming goodness that we are responding to. So the fear of the Lord doesn't work exactly like other fears. It's not a response to something bad that would make us want to avoid that thing. It's a response to something good that actually draws us into relationship. Um, so, But I think it kind of makes sense that the fear of the Lord isn't really like other fears because God isn't really like anything else either. Um, there, there are a whole bunch of scriptures that describe uh, what we are being drawn into when we're being drawn into this right fear of the Lord. I just want to hit a few of those really quick, uh, some of my favorites. Here's Psalm 25:14. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenants. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. Then Philippians 2, 12 through 13, uh, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That's one of several passages that associates the fear of the Lord with trembling, with like this whole person, body, mind, soul, heart, response to God, like this overwhelming awareness of him and of his his work, what he's actually doing. Um, then let's see. Oh, saw, or Proverbs 8.13. Oh, wait, no, I skipped one. Let me go back. Uh, Psalm 34, 7 through 9. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. That's a good one. That same psalm says, um, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, which sounds like that's the security detail I want. Like, the president has a secret service. I would rather have the angel of the Lord. Uh, okay, here's another one, Proverbs 8.13. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Do you think it would do you good if you hated evil more? I think it would. What if you... Do you think it would be good for people around you if you hated what God hated? Yeah. Um, here's another one. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. The fear of the Lord is a posture of awe and wonder and reverence toward God. Uh, oh, and there, here's the last one. It's from Revelation. Then I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth. He said in a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. So, first of all, I think... Anytime you start a sentence with, and then I saw another angel, like you're having a pretty good day. Um, but this verse, I think, helps us see how even like angelic beings, those who have been worshiping God and in his presence forever, even they, they would recommend the fear of the Lord to us. And it sounds like it may even be something that equips us for whatever we'll be doing in heaven. And so I think if we're going to have it there, we might as well have it now.
so that's just a brief survey of scripture and, and this topic in scripture. And um, I think maybe in summary we could say that that the fear of the Lord encompasses a variety of appropriate responses to God's word, to God's character, to God's judgments in his sovereignty. And it really affects the way we think about everything. Everything from reality to morality is affected by the fear of the Lord. And throughout the Bible, um, it's associated with this increased awareness of who God is. And, and often it's, it seems like it's something God wants to give people. Um, it's, it's a sign that he is about to come and make himself known. And he gives them a right fear of him so that they can receive whatever he is about to do or say next. And um, I didn't put this passage up here on the screens because it doesn't explicitly reference the fear of the Lord. But in Isaiah 6, when he's being commissioned by God and he sees this vision of God's throne and there are seraphim encircling and crying out, holy, holy, holy. And Isaiah is totally overwhelmed and overcome. And he says, woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. He is just overcome by the beauty and holiness and majesty of God. And then when God says, who will we send? Isaiah throws up his hand and says, send me, I'll go. And I think that's not um, not just missionary zeal. I think he has the fear of the Lord, which manifests as this overwhelming compulsion to do whatever God says. It's like, whatever you say next, God, I'm going to do it. Where do you want me to go? I'm there. Um, so that's, I think that's what we're talking about. That's what we have in mind when we're talking about the fear of the Lord. So maybe with, um, with the rest of scripture kind of fleshing this concept out for us, we can go back to Exodus 1 and see what happens when these Hebrew midwives fear the Lord. And I think we can see three things that happen. We'll pick up um, in verse 15. Exodus 1, verse 15. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shipra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the first thing we see is that because they fear God, they obey him. Um, Shipra and Pua are the two midwives who are mentioned in this story, uh, but they were probably not the only midwives over the whole nation of Israel. Um, this is happening about 80 years before the Exodus, so you could estimate the Hebrew population at maybe like two to three million at this point. Um, and it would have taken more than two midwives to serve all those families. So what seems more likely is that um, Shipra and Pua are in like a supervisory role over the midwives of Israel, uh, which is probably why Pharaoh calls them into this meeting. Um, but they are not like high-ranking government officials by any means. Like they don't, they don't have a PR firm. They don't issue public statements. Nobody's calling them up for an interview on MSNBC. They are, um, they serve the Hebrew women, which makes them the servants of the slave population. So it's a pretty low-ranking position. 
which could make you wonder, why does the king of Egypt want to meet with them? Why is he calling them in for a meeting? Uh, what does Pharaoh want with the midwives of Israel? Well, verse 10 tells us that it's because he feared the growth of the Hebrew people. They were multiplying quickly, and he was afraid. Pharaoh saw the growth of God's people as a threat to his power. So Shipra and Pua get called into this meeting because they are actually working at the front lines of Israel's growth. Like They are actively involved. They are assisting with this growth. And that means they would have been well-positioned because of their involvement to also cut off that growth right at the root. And they have to choose in this conversation with Pharaoh whether they're going to work to bring life or bring death to the people of God. They're going to have to decide whose mission they'll take up and which king is going to have their allegiance. So verse 17 tells us, But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. Which makes me wonder, like, where did these midwives learn to fear the Lord? What, what would they have known about God so far that would have taught them that? How would they know how to obey here? Well, they've got the stories that would later be written down to form the book of Genesis. Um, so that means they would have had the stories of creation and the fall. And they would have known that when God made the first community on earth, Adam and Eve, that there was an enemy who tried to destroy that community by tricking a woman into disobeying God. And they would have known about the curse that followed that disobedience. And they would have seen firsthand the effects of that curse. They're midwives. They know something about pain and childbearing. And they would have also known that when God gave that curse, he also gave a promise that he would send a deliverer through childbearing. He promised a seed born of a woman who would crush the head of a serpent. And they would have known about God's covenant with Abraham, uh, that God told Abraham this promised seed was going to come from him, that the descendants of Abraham would outnumber the stars in the sky, he would have a huge family, and that family was going to bless the whole world. So as the Hebrew people are growing bigger and bigger and bigger while they're living in Egypt, um, Shipra and Pua would have known that's not just because Hebrew people are super fertile. They would have known this is evidence that God is keeping his covenant. He's being faithful, even while the nation is suffering. And then later, um, after Abraham, his grandson Isaac, or sorry, his grandson Jacob, the father of the 12 tribes of Israel, um, gives God an interesting name. He calls God the fear of Isaac. Um, and he uses that name when he's confronting this boss who's been harsh and unfair with him. And he says, my God, the fear of Isaac has been with me during all this hard labor. So I think just like these patriarchs, just like these fathers of Israel who went before them, these mothers of Israel know the promises of God, and in the fear of God, they believe that he's being faithful to them. 
So when Pharaoh gives this order to kill the babies, I think they would have seen that as more than just a political maneuver. It's it's more than just a moral question, although it's, it's both of those things too. This was the strategic move of an enemy who hated God's people and wanted to wipe them off the face of the earth. And their participation in his plan would have put them in direct opposition to God, in direct opposition to his promises and his plan. And when they refuse to carry out this command from Pharaoh, they are refusing to lift their hands against God or against his people. I don't think they were trying to launch a revolution or overturn a government or anything like that. I don't think they were looking for a fight. And I don't think we're supposed to be either. I think Christians are supposed to be, um, well, we're not supposed to be argumentative or quarrelsome or quick-tempered, but it should be impossible to scare us into sinning. It should be impossible to scare us into disobeying God because we don't fear people. We fear God. And Shipra and Pua feared God, so they obeyed him. And they had no idea what would happen next. It could have gone pretty bad from there. Like Pharaoh's next order could have been, fine, kill the midwives. They don't know. They just know they cannot lift their hand against God or against his people. They've got to obey him. So what happens next? Well, verse 21 tells us, um, God was kind to the midwives and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. So the second thing that happens in this passage, because the midwives fear God, is that he blesses them. Now, I think it would be a mistake if we read this story and thought that it was saying, if you do the right thing, everything's going to go well for you in life. All your wildest dreams will come true. God will give you everything you want. Um, That's not the lesson here. But God does delight to bless those who fear him. That's not just in this passage. That's like if you were to go to BibleGateway.com and type in the fear of the Lord and look up like all the verses in the Bible about that, you would be amazed, shocked, overwhelmed at the massive blessings God wants to pour out on those who fear him. And he does it for these ladies. Um, He gives the midwives families. I'm not sure if that means they were unmarried before, if they just didn't have children. Um, But I think when God gives them families, that's a picture for us um, that's not just about uh, how God blesses people when they fear him, but it's about what happens when we obey God. It shows us something important about obedience, which is that obedience always bears fruit. It's not a guarantee that that everybody who obeys, obeys God will have children, but there is a guarantee that everybody who obeys God will bear fruit. Um, and it may not be the fruit we expected. It may not be in the time frame that we were looking for. But every act of obedience, every act of faith toward God bears fruit. 
And when we fear God, we become spiritually productive people. Like we end up with lives and homes and hearts that overflow with the good fruit that God produces. But God didn't just add to these midwives' families. Um, He added to the whole community because they feared the Lord. He multiplied the Israelites in numbers. So um, there would have been, you know, some addition to the community just because these midwives refused to kill the babies. So it was their, their efforts produced something in the natural, but God actually adds to their work and he makes the Israelites even more fruitful than they already were. So God makes their obedience even more productive than it would have been apart from him. But he doesn't just multiply them like in terms of their population. He kind of multiplies their obedience. It's like their obedience reproduces in the community. Um, because it wouldn't have been just Shipra and Pua who defied this order. The the Israelite midwives collectively decide to disobey Pharaoh and obey God. And then uh, when, a- when Pharaoh extends the order to all his people, a whole bunch more people have to decide whether they're going to obey God or obey Pharaoh. And they decide to obey God. And that would include like Jacobed and Miriam, Moses's mother and sister. Um, so the midwives' response to God gets replicated throughout the whole community. And actually then it goes even beyond the Hebrew people because Pharaoh's own daughter defies his order and brings the baby Moses into his house, which there's no indication um, in scripture that she does that out of a fear of the Lord. But I think it's worth noting um, that even people who don't fear God are better off when we do. They'll make better decisions. <laughs> um, and then third, because these midwives fear God, they glorify him. Um, Exodus 1 verses 18 through 19 says, Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. Um, so the opening chapter of Exodus, um, the verses we read today and then the ones Jaron taught us through last week, um, that chapter reads kind of like a birth narrative. It's like God's people are groaning together. They've been in hard labor for a long time. They're miserable. They're crying out for a deliverer. And that's because Exodus is not just a story about how Moses was born. This is a story of how the nation of Israel was reborn. And the Exodus isn't just going to mean freedom from slavery for them. It's going to be a new birth for the whole nation. So when you put this story about the midwives, like, in that context, then what Shipra and Pua say to Pharaoh sounds even more bold. Because they're not just talking about the Hebrew women. They're talking about the Hebrew people and the God who is going to deliver them. So I spent more time than I can justify um, researching ancient Mesopotamian birthing practices and I, you should Google fear of the Lord. You should not Google ancient Mesopotamian <laughs> practices. It's stuff you don't want to know. But but I did learn something that um, that helped me understand a, a bit about this chapter. So in ancient Mesopotamia, women would give birth in these special chairs 
called birthing stools. Um, if Pharaoh mentions one, and um, they are depicted in all kinds of Egyptian art. Um, and in Egypt, these birthing stools would have been decorated with images of Egyptian goddesses of war and fertility and childbirth. Um, and Egyptian women believed that they were getting some kind of divine assistance from these goddesses. So they saw childbirth as this symbolic and highly religious ceremony. So when Shipra and Pua tell Pharaoh that the Hebrew women deliver babies so quickly the midwife can't even get there in time, they are saying something about the God these women appeal to. They are saying, he's a better deliverer than your gods. We don't know who's supposed to be helping all these Egyptian women give birth, but our God knows what he's doing. He comes through for us. Actually, he doesn't even need our help. We get there, and he's already done it. And they're also saying something about the promises of God, because it's not just the women who are vigorous, it's the seed. This one that God promised, the serpent crusher, the offspring of Abraham, the people through whom God promised he would bless the whole world. Like Pharaoh could make life hard for them, but he could not issue a command that would nullify the promises of God. Those are vigorous. They're guaranteed by the author of life. And these women are saying that after being enslaved for years, which tells us that the fear of the Lord not only enables them to obey God, but to glorify God. Like when they say that to Pharaoh, I don't think it's just swagger or sassiness. Like I think this is the determined hope of women who know the Lord and fear him rightly. And it ended up being a hope that was very well placed. If we fast forward about 1,400 years and flip over to the opening pages of Luke's gospel, we'll meet two other women, Mary and Elizabeth. And they were holding on to these same promises. And they actually got to see them come to pass. They got to see the baby who every Hebrew midwife longed to hold in her arms. And when Isaiah prophesied about this deliverer, here's what he said. He said, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. That's Jesus. So we just spent some time thinking about these midwives of Israel and their fear of the Lord. But I have to tell you, Jesus and his fear of the Lord are way more impressive. Nobody has seen God as clearly as Jesus has. Nobody has enjoyed better relationship or more affection with God than Jesus has. And his fear of the Lord is more zealous, more pure, and more effective than anyone else's. Jesus obeyed God. Every thought, every deed, every breath was taken in total obedience to his father and to the plan that they'd made together. And if the promises were vigorous, then the one who fulfilled them is even more so. Like, you don't know anybody more vigorous than Jesus. 
He's got the power of an indestructible life. And because Jesus obeyed, God blessed him. God is giving him a family from every nation and tribe and tongue on earth. And 2,000 years later, it has not stopped growing. Actually, it won't. The increase of his government will know no end. And his obedience keeps producing more obedience. It's being replicated throughout the community. Because when we look at Jesus, he's not just an inspirational figure. When we behold him, We become like him. He's actually transforming us. And Jesus definitely glorified God. Um, But it's like even more profound than that. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. So it's like Jesus doesn't just glorify God. He is the glory of God, the bright, outshining radiance of God's character. So when you come to Jesus, you also come into his fear of the Lord. And he's the son of God. So his fear of the Lord, the one he brings us into, is the kind of fear that is appropriate for the children of God. I mean, who is more secure than those who have been brought near to God by the blood of Jesus Christ? Who is more in awe of his holiness? Who is more reverent of his power and his judgments than those who get to know God up close and personal? Who enjoys more of his tender care and his patient discipline than his own children? That's the fear of the Lord that Jesus has and that he has brought us into. And I think he not only delights to see it, he delights to give it. And I want to receive it. I want to receive whatever he has for us that is going to prepare us to do to, for whatever he wants us to do next. Whatever he wants to do or say next, I want to be ready to receive it. I want an increased awareness of who he is and what he's about. And I want what happened to Isaiah to happen to us. <laughs> that there would be like some whole mind, body, spirit, heart response to God when some awareness of who he is actually touches my consciousness. I want to be transformed by it. So maybe you could stand and we'll, we'll ask for that together. I'm going to pray for us and then um, there will also be group of people, they're on their way now, uh, who are gathering over in this corner of the auditorium. And if you came uh, hoping somebody would pray with you today, there was something stirred up for you uh, during worship or during the talk that you would like to process in prayer with another person, um, you can head that direction now. Um, And then after I finish praying, this meeting will be dismissed. Let's pray. God, I thank you you have brought us into fellowship with you, into better relationship than we ever could have asked or imagined. And I thank you that one of the things you want for us is a right fear of you and all the blessing that comes with that. I pray, God, you would set us free from any fear of you that is wrong and that you would increase the kind of fear in us that is right as appropriate for your children, and that you delight to see. I pray, Lord, you would make us more aware of your presence, 
that we would see you clearly, that we would know you better, that we would love you more fervently, that we would obey you more wholeheartedly, and that you would be glorified through what you do in us and for us. We're your people, and we want to be marked by every attitude, every posture, every thought that you think is right and good. So transform us, Lord. Do this work in us. We submit to you. We want whatever you want for us. You know what's best, and you know what's next. So bless us, God, and we pray because we've been brought into this wonderful promise that these midwives were looking for. We pray, Lord, that in Jesus, you would also send us out and make us a blessing wherever we go this week. It's in your name we pray, Lord. Amen.